International Court of Justice in The Hague, Netherlands. It started the hearing, two-day hearing. Uh, it started today on South Africa's petition against Israel. Against Israel in the sense that they want a stoppage to hostilities in Gaza and other amends for other amends to be made to the people of Gaza. And they have described what's happening in Gaza, what the Israelis are doing or allegedly doing in Gaza as genocide. So they want that stopped. That hearing started. It's quite a quite an important event. So I thought we will we will go into a few questions there. Number one, what exactly is this petition? What is what is it that, that the South Africans are seeking? How much how seriously should it be taken and how seriously would the Israelis be taken it and taking it and what can be the implications of this? And then we get into why are the South Africans doing it? Why out of so many countries in the world, 194 countries in the world, South Africa chose to do this. Since it's a complex set of issues, I also have with me Pia Krishnan Kuti, who covers foreign affairs, international affairs for us. You see her often uh, on the show that she does, World 360. Also, you see her stories with this, with the description of today's episode. You will also see there will also be a link of the story she's done today. So she'll be speaking uh, and she'll be explaining many of these aspects with me here. So this will be like a conversation. So first of all, Pia, what do, what does South Africa want? What does this petition say? It's an 84-page petition. It's an 84-page petition. It's a bit short given, uh, given the uh, tradition of Indian courts. Right. But 84 pages of uh, a dense argument. Uh, not only do they want Israel to uh, seize all of its hostilities and its military operation in Gaza, it also wants it to rescind some policies, whether on aid, the blockage of aid, whether on in evacuation policies as well. And uh, it, it's also talked a lot about the deliberate infliction of conditions of life in Gaza. So it's basically making an argument that the military operation has targeted civilians, something that Israel has vehemently uh, dismissed. In fact, uh, a statement from the Israel government called this malicious blood libel. And Netanyahu himself is sort of... Malicious blood libel. Yeah. That's a strong uh, language. Exactly, especially yeah. libel. Um, and Netanyahu, the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, has even said that the IDF is acting as morally as possible in Gaza. And it is, and he has instead sort of pointed the finger at Hamas, saying Hamas is the main perpetrator. So if I read from the uh, South African application to ICJ, the International Court of Justice, which by the way has 15 judges, 15 judges, yes. 15 judges with one, one presiding judge, not exactly the chief justice, but like the presiding judge who has a casting vote. And exactly. that that is an American, Joan yes. Donahue. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, one line from this application that the South Africans have made goes, and I quote, this Israeli actions, and I quote, are genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of the Palestinians in Gaza. And then they have requested the ICJ to, and once again I quote, indicate provisional measures to protect the rights of the Palestinians in Gaza in line with the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. So explain right. that a little bit. And then I will also tell you, after she's explained it, what the Israelis are saying. 
So the 1948 uh, Genocide Convention was, it's basically an international agreement that many nations came together to agree and sign upon after the Second World War. And it was basically a commitment to never again commit the atrocities, specifically the Holocaust, uh, after the World War. And this is an international treaty. Is, so South Africa's argument is that Israel has violated this treaty. And in fact, it's quite embarrassing to accuse the state uh, which has sort of been at the center of the Holocaust, Jews were the center of the Holocaust, and to accuse Israel of committing the same crimes that it suffered is quite a major statement and an allegation to make. Because that's, that treaty came into effect so that the world would now get together. The entire world felt embarrassed and shamed by what happened in the Holocaust. So something like the Holocaust should not happen again. To use the same convention now to question Israel and to ask, to ask Israel to be called to account has its, its own significance, which we need to understand. Is right. that correct? Exactly. In fact, the treaty came into place yeah. in 1948, yeah. right after the Second World War. So the War. Israeli view, the counter view, the Israeli view is, as Pia told us, that Israelis called it blood libel. Not just libel, but blood libel. Not just that, that we are acting in self-defense, that Hamas it is, that started it on October 7. When they started it, they should have known what was coming. Of course, the argument the, on the other side from the critics of Israel, Israel would be that this response is disproportionate. Again, Israel's view would be that we are a small country and a small population. We cannot afford to lose people. We've suffered from the Holocaust and anti-Semitism for all these, not just decades, but so many centuries. Our response to any such atrocity upon us has to be, must be disproportionate for it to be effective and a deterrent going ahead. Now, Israeli ambassador Naur Gilon, he wrote an article in the Indian Express in which he said he has questioned the notion that this is a genocide. That is the Israeli official view that if you call this genocide and he has given definitions, his definitions of genocide and effectively how the expression was invented or confected in the wake of the Holocaust. You say that if you use if you use the South African definition, then every military operation will be, will be called a genocide. And he claims in that article that Israelis are marking out areas, issuing maps, saying these are areas which are safe, these are areas which are not safe, people can move to these areas. And also the Israeli allegation that Hamas is using civilian areas to hide there. Exactly. And in fact, in his... Uh, op-ed in the Indian Express, he's argued that Hamas's main command centers are under hospital schools and basically it's as it is a dense, densely populated enclave uh, and that the IDF is not making any targeted killings. That's his argument. Yeah. So what is it that the court could do now? Well, that's a good question because the ICJ has come under criticism <coughs> many times for Sure, it's rulings being binding, but how effective are they, right? Uh, in 1986, the ICJ said that US actions in Nicaragua were against international law and the US blatantly ignored it. In 2018, during the Trump administration, um, the ICJ ruled that US sanctions against Iran shouldn't hurt humanitarian and civilian purposes. 
or needs. And the Trump administration flat out rejected that. So what can these rulings actually do on the ground? That's still up for debate. Uh, but coming back to my point about the embarrassment that this sort of levels against Israel and the US, I think that is something that is worth focusing on because on the world stage, who is actually benefiting from the embarrassment caused to Israel and the US? China and Russia, who also happen to be close allies of South Africa. Well, yes and no, because China and Russia also happen to be quite friendly with Israel. So everybody plays this geopolitical game because in the, behind this is also the game of who is more with the global south or the other way around. Mm. Who, has the global, who has the global south more with them? If you see the voting record on these resolutions, post-Gaza attack or post-October 7 resolutions at the UN, on most of those, almost the bulk of the global south has voted against Israel. So it also suits Russia and China to position themselves in such a way that where they may not be actively taking a position against Israel, but at the same time, they will quite enjoy the global south taking a position which is seen to be an anti-Western -anti and more specifically an anti-American position. So that is how complex this is. So this, this 1948 convention, Pia, this is called Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. So this right. is specific to genocide. And for the Israelis now to be taken to the, in a way, the highest court in the world, although I personally might have my skepticism about what power institutions of the United Nations have, because people also follow their orders to their convenience. Now, if you remember Nicaragua in 1986 that Pia told us, that is when the Americans were interfering with what they saw as a leftist government there. So wherever there's a leftist government in South or Latin America, Americans follow their own doctrine that their influence must, be, must, must exist everywhere. And that's the reason they carry out these operations. And Donald Trump, as you know, is not prone to taking, to following, respecting any court's orders that we've seen in more cases than one. So that said, uh, what can ICJ do besides embarrassing Israel? I would, before answering your question, also come back to why the 1948 Genocide Convention is important. It was the first human rights treaty by uh, countries around the world, right? It was the first time they came together to codify genocide. As far as what you said about the ICJ, um, there's another interesting angle to that, which we slightly touched upon with regard to the president of the ICJ, who you mentioned, uh, Judge Donahue is an American and uh, also served on the US Treasury Department. So there are fears that, you know, as the president of the ICJ who has the power to cast a deciding vote should the ruling be divided by all the judges. Is it possible that under her lead, the ICJ could dismiss this case? That is also a question that has been brought up. But you know, it's 15 judges. There is seven and seven. There has to be a dead heat like that. Also, we should not, ideally, we should not be imputing motives to judges on the International Court of Justice in terms of where they come from. Although the American official position on this case is quite emphatic. It's very emphatic. It's very pro-Israel and they've completely dismissed 
the South African move. In fact, the National Security Council uh, spokesperson, who's for, for all pr practical purposes, is like the White House's spokesperson, he has called the South African application meritless, counterproductive, that's John Kirby, familiar face, familiar voice. He said this application, South, South African application is meritless, counterproductive. At the same time, South Africa has collected a very strong legal team and South Africa, African delegation, for better or worse, is also accompanied, at least that announcement was made to be accompanied by Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the Labour Party in Britain. In fact, a leader from the far left of the Labour Party in Britain, who is no longer, who actually lost his position because he was seen as being too far on the left or too extreme in his views. But that said, uh, Pia, this is a strong uh, team of lawyers and experts that South Africa has put together. Right. And uh, so today, in the uh, opening remarks, the opening arguments made by South Africa's legal team, it was led by Professor John Dugard, uh, who is an eminent lawyer in South Africa. And uh, he basically led the charge <coughs> and made some very intense comments and remarks while on the podium. In fact, he went as far as to say that Gaza has been turned into a concentration camp. So again, we're seeing a lot of references. Which again, say, saying this to, to Israelis that they've converted some place into a concentration camp. Uh, it is quite, quite a tough thing to say and that too at ICJ. Exactly. So he led the charge and we saw a lot of sort of reiterations of what was mentioned in the application. The fact that there has been genocidal intent by a lot of the ministers from Israel, uh, well, some of them. And uh, if I could just mention, it wasn't too long ago, just a few weeks ago, that the US itself distanced itself from comments made by far-right ministers in Netanyahu's government, Ben Gavir and Smotrich. And those comments were also... And, and in, in, in his article, the Israeli ambassador to India, he has said that some of those comments were made in the heat of the moment. Mm. And they should not have been made. So Israel itself has officially distanced itself. But remember, Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition does include really extreme right-wing elements. And he plays with them. He plays along with them because it's very important for him also to keep his job. Because as long as he has his job, it also gives him immunity from prosecution because he's facing serious corruption charges. Also, it's... A funny coalition, as most coalitions on Israel are, it includes these far-right parties, far-right Jewish parties, who believe that their scripture said that there will be no Palestinians or all of this land will be Israel, as much as Hamas believes that their scriptures tell us that there will be no Jews here, all the Jews will drown in the sea, and all of this will be Palestinian land. At the same time, this coalition, Netanyahu's coalition, also includes the Arab parties, so several Arab MPs or MKs, as those are called in Israel, members of Knesset. So, so it's in that mishmash situation that Netanyahu is running this policy. Now, I read an article by Professor Tim Murithi, of which I'll share a link with you. Please read that. It's a journal article in which he explains what this case is about. And he says, in a sense, this case is about proving or establishing that international law works in the world and it is international law and not some statecraft, public relations generated notion of a so-called rule-based order, which means it should not just be platitudes, 
international law should be respected and it should be seen in application and the credibility of international law should be established that is what this case is about about obviously professor murithi is writing it from the point of view of the of the south africans now the question arises why did the south africans have to do it of all the countries in the world why south africa because it's not as if south africa treats israel as an enemy country or as a mm. country that does not have a right to exist south africa and israel have always had diplomatic relations uh, nelson mandela has also said that israel has the right to exist of course he said but they must withdraw from all the occupied territories right in a, and many countries have said that so in a sense south africa is not like iran south africa does not not accept the existence of israel and south africa also has a jewish population not a small jewish population maybe 50 60000 although many have migrated out and during in the years of the apartheid this jewish population has had a mixed role because while while on the one hand they played a lead role in campaigning against apartheid at the same time because they were almost all white they were also seen as beneficiaries of the apartheid regime so that issue is also there that's why it's difficult to see generally it would be difficult to see why are the south africans doing it why did south africa decide to go decide to take such a major step so pia explain mm. for explain to us the first answer i would give you is that south africa has had a long standing policy on palestine it has had a long standing support you mentioned nelson mandela he and um, uh, yasser arafat a key figure in the oslo accords had a, a very public warm friendship and um, you know there was a 1998 uh, state visit carried out by uh, arafat and he was to, to south africa to south africa he was awarded the highest uh, honor for foreigners in south africa uh, he spoke in the parliament uh, on the floor of the parliament during that visit and i know and you're right in saying that south africa has not really um denounced the state of israel however they have had rocky relations even after the 1973 yom kippur war it was rocky relations to say the least recently in 2019 south africa uh showed intent to close down its embassy in tel aviv and now we're seeing uh south africa the south african parliament say that israel should close down its embassy within uh, south africa as well so i would say the relationship has been rocky but as far as uh south africa's motives in bringing this case before the icj one as i've spoken to experts they've said keeping the long standing policy that south africa has had on this issue it's an election year in south africa it's uh, south africa is also going to take over the g20 baton from brazil in november for 2025 could it be that south africa is projecting itself on the world stage you brought up the global south it's been uh, a key figure in that grouping and as far as the people i've spoken to um experts and think tanks former ambassadors to south africa they say that this could be very much a projection of south africa on the world stage uh the election year as i said is coming up as well and that definitely seems to be playing a role well i mean pretoria is an important capital probably the most important the most powerful capital in africa uh right now also this is an election year and remember anc 
since apartheid was lifted that was more just over 30 years ago since apartheid was lifted continuously anc has been in power different presidents have come and gone but anc has been in power nelson mandela was the was the first as we know so anc's rule has now gone on this long and it looks like right now its popularity is declining and i have seen some stories in the global press that this might be the first time that ANC loses power. Now, ANC also has a very strong left underpinning because right through the decades of fight against apartheid, they were supported by the Soviet bloc. Many of them were trained there. And that's where a lot of the Palestinian activists, particularly Palestinian arm-wing activists were also trained in the Soviet bloc as were the ANC arm-wing activists, arm-wing and political. And many relationships came up at the same time because there is a strong left underpinning that anti-Israel feeling is deep. The important thing to, to remember is because people instinctively jump to think, oh, South Africa is doing all this because there must be a large Muslim population which is putting pressure on this. The fact is the South African Muslim population is very small. It is actually less than 2%. South Africa is predominantly a Christian country. So, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela said, going right back to the early days of the anti-apartheid fight, that, that the fight of the Palestinians for a homeland, for self-determination, self is, is not different from the fight against apartheid. So, the line that he's used often, and that's much quoted. If you Google it, you will find many reference, references to it. The line that is repeatedly used was, we know our freedom is incomplete with, we know our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of Palestinians. And in the sixth policy conference report uh, of uh, ANC, African National Congress, there is a line and I will quote that line to you. Recognizing that South Africa and Palestine share the same struggle, the ANC, Afri African National Congress, should continue to intensify its solidarity with the people of Palestine by working with solidarity organizations and progressive forces domestically, regionally and continentally. I underline the expression progressive forces. So remember, I said that ANC has a strong left underpinning. So right now, ANC may also be trying to invoke its ideology more sharply or the sharper elements of its, its ideology more strongly because it faces a threat for the first time in this coming election. Just to add to that, historically, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, was always a huge um, supporter of the ANC. And in fact, Mende Mandela uh, acknowledged that during a banquet dinner when Arafat came to visit South Africa in 1998 and said, you know, we cannot ignore the amount of support we've received from the PLO. And despite us gaining independence, we're not uh, forgetting the struggles of other brothers and sisters across the world. And on 21st November, 2023, that's about six weeks after the October 7 attacks, Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, he also called a special session of the BRICS countries and where they, where they, where they spoke critically of Israel, India also attended that. So Brazil, Russia, India, China, Saudi Arabia, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, UAE and the Secretary General of the UN was also present there. And some strong words about Israel were spoken there as well, particularly by President Ramaphosa. 
So this pretty much explains to us, at least to the extent that we know right now, the the reason why the South Africans have taken this lead. Mm -hmm. As I said, it's a multifaceted uh, motive. It could be one, the long-standing foreign policy they've had in Palestine, an election year, a projection on the world stage, maybe even pitting itself as a one of a key figure, one of the key figures of the global south. Yeah, because everybody wants leadership of the global south now. And there is also strong anti-Americanism in the South African establishment. Right. The other thing that I'd like to just, just clarify, that post-Yom Kippur war, when some tensions did surface between South Af Africa and Israel, the context was different because South Africa was still under the apartheid regime. So those tensions rose because Israel was seen also as being critical of apartheid in South Africa. So there was a little, little, little bit of tit for tat going on there. Having said that, now this die is cast, this case is on. There's something that I'm confused about and I need Pia's help to resolve this. We also heard that there was this warrant on Putin. That mm -hmm. if Putin goes traveling to South Africa for that BRICS summit, then Putin should be arrested. South Africa would be obliged to arrest him. And probably that's the reason he declined to go there. What exactly was that issue? I'm glad you brought that up because when we talk about international law, there are two major institutions on the world stage. The ICJ, the International Court of Justice, now. Yes. the International Court of Justice that South Africa has approached. And then there's the ICC, uh, the International Criminal Court, which issued the arrest on Putin. These are two separate entities, but they both work with the UN. The ICJ is actually, was actually formed by the UN in uh, 1946. It had roots in a, an international court that was formed by the League of Nations in around the early 1900s. Now, the ICC is also based in Hague, which is why often there is confusion. I, mean, I was confused for sure. Right. So, so you are declaring it for me. Yes. So the ICC also based in The Hague is independent, though it does work with the UN. And one important distinction to be made is that the ICC tries individuals. It has tried, it, for example, it has not tried per se, but issued an arrest warrant against Putin. It doesn't um, really settle matters between member states as we've seen with the ICC. And, and ICC uh, and individuals can file cases in ICC? Yes. Individuals and in states yeah. against specific individuals, right. Right? right? Unlike the ICJ, which handles cases between member states, um, as I mentioned, 1986, between US and Nicaragua and so on and so forth. And we can't forget our own Jadav case. Uh, of course, Kulbushan Yadav. Our own Kulbushan Yadav case because Pakistan had handed over, handed out a death sentence to him and India went to ICJ and ICJ gave India a reprieve. Right. And that's why that story is right now sitting in, sitting in cold storage as of now. Of course, unfortunately, Kulbushan Yadav is still in, in custody in Pakistan, but he's alive and nobody's Nobody's reopened that chapter again. So ICG, ICJ in that case exercised its power and we've seen it happen in real life. And if the Indian government wanted to go after the Pakistan army chief, they would theoretically go to the ICC. See, specific individuals. Specific or the, or the ISI chief. 
I think they should go after, they could go after the entire succession of ISI chiefs. Of course, some of them became army chiefs as well, like the current one. Having said that, uh, before I let Pia go away, first of all, Pia, thank you very much. You made it so much simpler and you can do this better than me. So you, she should do it once in a while instead of me. So she should do Katta Katta by herself on international issues. In any case, she will know more than me on many of these things. And I also can't let her go away without telling you a little secret. So please look at the jacket she's wearing. Yes. I just found out that that's a jacket she just, quote unquote, stole <laughs> from her grandfather. How old yes. is that jacket? Mm, well, must be a... 60 years old, 70 yeah, And when old. did you pick it up? I recently went back to Bangalore for winter break and I quote unquote stole it from my achacha. I'm a Malayali. That's my paternal grandfather. And in fact... Nana. Yeah. Huh. There's, there's a little insignia here. It says Horn Brothers. Horn Brothers were a men's outfitters brand, London based, that was established in 1886. So it's a real Fantastic. relic I'm so, wearing. So Pia's Nana or Pia's Achacha, as she calls you, if you've been missing your jacket, you know where it is. This is a stolen property. You can come and recover it. We'll help you take it back. But I know you don't want you it You can back. take me to the ICC <laughs> if you have an I know issue. you don't want it back. So thank you very much, Pia.